Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Um, Again, as we approach the Scriptures, uh, we are looking for two specific things when we approach the Scriptures. The first is, uh, what is God saying to us personally in the Word? The second is, what are we going to do about it? Uh, That's what we're going to be looking at here in chapter 17, as we do every week. Uh, If you came expecting a Palm Sunday message today, you're not necessarily going to get that today. Um, In a very weird happenstance, you're going to get that in two weeks. And I know that sounds weird, uh, but this is the way that this works out. Because we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 is the triumphal entry. We're not there yet. And so what we're going to do is flip it upside down. On Easter, we'll talk about Easter Sunday. And then we'll go into detail on what leads up to that in the weeks after. So most churches do a few weeks leading into Easter. We're going to do a few weeks leading out of Easter to kind of get the fuller story going that way. And again, just kind of one of the quirks of working your way through books of the Bible, uh, one book at a time. Normally, I don't mind taking a pause But in this case, it would be a weird pause because we're going to get right back into the story of Easter the week after. So uh, just going to power through that and I'll explain how that works for Easter next week as well. So verse 1, Luke chapter 17, likely on the same occasion, by the way, as Luke 16. These first 10 verses uh, probably fit on the same occasion as chapter 16. So let's look at verse 1. He, that's Jesus, said to his disciples... It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? Afterwards, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Again, I think this passage fits at the end of chapter 16 nicely. Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to resurrect, but then ascend to heaven. And he's going to have to leave his disciples in charge of expanding the kingdom here on earth. So he's trying very diligently to prepare his disciples for his departure. As he does that, though, he keeps getting these various interruptions. On one hand, you have the good interruptions, uh, the people that are needing healing or need to ask him a question. And so you're going to see occasional uh, interruptions like that, which you're going to see kind of today where Jesus is going to heal some lepers. Uh, But you're also going to see this other interruption that keeps happening. It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees keep interrupting his teaching of the disciples, asking him questions, bringing accusations against him. And that's how chapter 16 ended, they were bringing these uh, questions and accusations. They were trying to trick Jesus in chapter 16. And so he turns away from his disciples so that he can teach something to the Pharisees so he can respond to that. It ended then uh, with this great parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And now he turns back to his disciples after being interrupted by the Pharisees. And he says, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. I think contextually he's talking specifically about the Pharisees here, uh, that they are stumbling blocks to the work of the kingdom. I think in a more universal sense, he's talking about anybody who's seeking to distract people from the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's anybody who's trying to lead people astray or lead people into sin. And so we now see, even though it's not just the Pharisees, we see that there are stumbling blocks 
all around us in the world. There, there's all kinds of things put there for the purpose of stumbling us. So, so if you can imagine yourself running through a field and you run across a, a giant boulder that you didn't see because the grass has grown up so high, you found a stumbling block. I remember one time uh, I was with a friend and we were riding three-wheelers. Three-wheelers were more uh, popular back then than four-wheelers. Uh, also not safe at all. I spent more time falling off of those things, getting flipped over. But anyway, we're buzzing through this field, maybe 30 miles an hour. We're not going crazy. Uh, just buzzing through this field of really tall um, grass. And there was a railroad tie that we couldn't see. And I hit that thing front tire first and just bup, 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 rolled over a couple of times over the handlebars. And uh, my friend didn't see me. And he ran over the top of me on his three-wheeler. There was this stumbling block that we didn't see. That's the way the world is sometimes. There's these stumbling blocks put out there to trip us up in the faith. Jesus says it's just inevitable that they're going to come. It's inevitable. You will have stumbling blocks, things that are designed by Satan to trip you up in your faith. It's just going to happen. But those who become stumbling blocks, the warning here, those who become stumbling blocks, there's punishment for them. Woe to them through whom they come. In fact, he says, basically, it would be better if the, if the mafia put you to death, if, if you swam with the fishes, so to speak. If they put a heavy millstone around your neck and threw you into the sea. In other words, he's saying, you'd be better off dead than to trip up one of my people. That for God, there is punishment to come for those. Of course, we know that punishment comes at the end as they will spend eternity separated from God, yes, but they'll be in hell, a place of eternal torment and punishment. Way worse than just death. It's way worse than that. That's the, the reality of this idea of stumbling blocks. But Jesus doesn't leave it there he brings with it some instructions to the disciples in response to the stumbling blocks. This first assumption or this first instruction from Jesus in verse 3, be on your guard, of course against the stumbling blocks, but also be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him if he repents, forgive him if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The response to stumbling blocks and to those who have stumbled in their faith is to rebuke in hopes that they repent so that you can forgive them. That's our response. And so to the one who's caused the stumbling, uh, we should, as it says in that passage, we should rebuke them. Now, he doesn't go into great detail what that looks like here, but Matthew 18 lays it out for us. First, you go to him one-on-one. If they don't respond to that, then maybe you take a couple other people with you. And then if they don't respond to that, then you bring it before the church. And if they don't respond to that, you treat them as an unbeliever. Unless, and this is my unless that I'm adding, I'm not sure it's 100% the scriptural answer, but it seems to be the example of Jesus. If they're an unbeliever, you can just do the rebuking. You don't have to bring them before the church because they don't care what the church has to say. But you can certainly, if somebody is causing believers to stumble by the things that they're doing, you can point it out. You can point it out to them and just say, what you're doing is a stumbling block. I saw a news report this week, and it was, uh, I thought, pretty fascinating. It was a group of employees from Disney that were Christians who said, Disney, you're starting to stumble people. It used to be a family organization. Now you're leading people away from that. So a group of Disney employees protesting their own company. They were rebuking them because they saw them as a stumbling block to believers and to the family. It's a very simple concept. Where it gets difficult is not in the understanding. It's if, if they repent, oh no, now we have to forgive them. That's a little bit more difficult, isn't it? And Jesus doesn't even make it easier. He says, in fact, if... if if seven times a day they sin against you and seven times in that same day they come back and say, I repent, you're supposed to forgive them seven times. In another place, he'll say 70 times seven. Now, the idea is that we forgive as many times 
as they sin against us and repent. Now that's a real difficult thing to take when we're the ones sinned against. It's a wonderful thing to receive when we're the sinner who received that from Jesus Christ, right? Like it's not like we came to Christ, we were forgiven of our sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and we never sinned again. It's not like that. Many times over, we have sinned since becoming Christians. And yet God is gracious to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Uh, There's the teaching out there that once you become a Christian, you never sin again. 1 John says, if you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth is not in you. So there's your first sin. You're a liar. But he does say, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The fact that he's forgiven us seven times or even 70 times seven sets the pattern for us that we need to be willing to forgive other people who've sinned against us. It's a difficult thing to be sure. And I would even go so far as to say that I can forgive somebody without setting myself up for failure in the future. So for instance, if I have a bully in school, who every single time he sees me, he punches me in the face and then says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm going to forgive him, but I'm probably going to walk a different way from now on. It's not being unwise, but don't don't misunderstand. He can still find you. It's just this willingness to forgive when you're sinned against and there's repentance there. And I'm struggling with that just a little bit because... I'm trying to envision somebody actually repenting seven times in one day. I can, I can envision somebody saying, I'm sorry, seven times one day. But repentance would be a change of heart, a change of direction. So there'd have to be some sort of something that happens there. But the way Jesus says it, it's just like, boom. They've sinned against you, they repent. They sin against you, they repent. Seven times in one day, our response is to, well, it's to forgive them. Now that sounds like a lot, And in fact, the apostles, so he was talking to all the disciples. Who knows? It could have been hundreds of them at that point. We don't know how many were actually there. He's talking to all the disciples. But the 12 apostles, the super disciples, if you want to think of it that way, the chosen disciples, they say, Jesus, you're going to have to help us out with our faith here. Please increase our faith. I mean, it's going to take a lot of faith for us to forgive somebody who sinned against us seven times. That's a a lot of faith. Jesus' response is, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now that might be hard to envision that you have enough faith to tell a, a tree to be uprooted and thrown into the sea, In another place, though, Jesus double downs on that and says, you have enough faith. If you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you have enough faith to say to a mountain to get up and move, and a mountain will move. So if you're having trouble envisioning a mulberry tree, imagine envisioning an entire mountain moving because of your faith. It seems impossible, right? Or maybe I just don't have enough faith, but I think the issue is actually different. To Jesus, the issue isn't enough faith. I think maybe some of the older folks may not get this, but the younger folks might. We think in terms of video games sometimes. Like like faith is like this number on your screen. Like I have this much faith. I have 100 faith units today. But I've used a few of them and now I'm down to 75 faith units. But I'm gonna get a couple more faith units if I drink this magic potion over here. And... Others are like, well, I only have 25 faith units, but my dexterity is through the roof. And so I'd be a terrible cleric. For Jesus, it's not a matter of how much faith, it's just whether you have faith. The faith to do the things he's asked you to do. Let me put it this way. If I was not convinced that this structure up here was gonna hold me, 
I wouldn't have climbed the stairs in the first place. I just wouldn't have done it. I don't have to have much faith. I just have to believe it'll hold me. And as soon as I believe it'll hold me, then I'm willing to do the thing I need to do. That's the faith. It's not like there's this super faith that's required. I just Either it will or it won't. Either God is true or he isn't. Either God will keep his word or he will not. So that then begs the question, why didn't the disciples start the mulberry baptizing ministry? Or the mountain moving ministry? Like, instead of like driving through the mountains and having to blow through it to get our roads to go through, dynamiting our way through mountains, why didn't they just call some of the disciples and say, mountain, we want this road to be straight. I just need you to move in faith of a mustard seed. Why didn't that happen? Why don't we see that today? Why don't we see one instance, the rest of scripture of mulberry trees being moved and thrown into the ocean? Because it's not faith to do what you want. It's faith to do what God wants. God does not need mountains moved. He doesn't need mulberry trees dunked. He needs people to come to repentance. And he needs right here his disciples to forgive. It doesn't take a lot of faith to forgive. In fact, what it really takes is obedience. It doesn't take faith. It takes obedience. Our Savior said, if they repent, forgive them. Even if they do it over and over and over again, Forgive them. That's what he said to do. If we have faith in him, we will do it and let the outcome be his responsibility. And if we find ourselves being sinned against regularly, it's not outside God's will to use that to sanctify us or to use that to draw the sinful party. He's going to give an illustration here. Now, you kind of have to make a decision on this. Um, this could be a string of three separate teachings just thrown together. Certainly possible. I'm going to tie them all together, even though I think this last one could be separate in verses 7 through 10. I think it has a tie in here. Look at this in verse 7. He's going to give now a parable. Which of you, having a slave, Plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you say, we are unworthy slaves we have done only that which we ought to have done. So simple illustration, a slave's been working all day long and now it's time to feed his master. The slave doesn't say to his master, you know what, I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat first, then I'll get to you. That's not how that works. The slave serves the master because that's his job. That's what he was commanded to do. And the master's under no obligation to say thanks, although it would be nice. And sometimes I think people read these parables and they, and they take the wrong emphasis. They put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. They kind of miss the point is what I'm trying to say here. And they're like, well, how rude of this guy not to say thank you. It's a parable. It's a story. And it, and it may seem a little bit rude to us. But the point wasn't the idea that he doesn't give thanks. No, the point is that the servant, that's us, is obedient to the commandment of our Lord, our master, that's Jesus. Well, in the context here, what is the commandment that Jesus gives? Rebuke, if they repent, forgive. That's the picture. Now, I know because it's three different little pieces there all put together, it might be a little confusing, so I wrote it down in a sentence for you guys to kind of help you think through those first 10 verses. It's inevitable that people will tempt others to sin, but they will be punished. You should rebuke them in hopes that they repent. 
then forgive them a ridiculous amount of times. <laughs> this doesn't take much faith. It takes obedience. And you're doing it because you were instructed to not to be praised. That's how we tie all of those together. And that kind of ends that section of teaching of Jesus. And now we move on in verse 11 to a, a new section. It's a different occasion, it seems. It tells us in verse 11, while he, that's Jesus, was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. Uh, as he entered the village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. They raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And, they, and as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his, uh, he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. So simple change of scene. Now Jesus is still working his way to Jerusalem. So just remember the nation of Israel, Jesus did most of his teaching at the uppermost northern portion uh, in the area of Galilee, the cities of Capernaum, all the way up north at the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did most of his teaching. He's working his way down to southern Israel, to Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. So he's just working his way down only to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. There's this area called Samaria, it's just some area in between. That's a terrible joke, wasn't it? It's an area between, this is why you should vet the jokes before you say them. Don't just come with whatever comes out of your mouth, Sean, just say it. That's the way I live. It's this area between Galilee in the north, Judah in the south. It's the area of Samaria. He's right there on the border, likely because uh, Jesus and his disciples didn't often go through Samaria. In fact, the Samaritans wouldn't allow Jews through and Jews didn't really want to. And they would oftentimes go all the way around the outskirts of Samaria and then go down from there uh, just because they didn't want to have that interaction together because the Jews and the Samaritans despised one another. There's a history there. Uh, during the uh, scattering of the Assyrians, when the Assyrians scattered the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, what they did in order to um, turn people away from their own beliefs, to turn people away from their own citizenship, they didn't keep all of their prisoners together in one area. They scattered them throughout all of their cities. So only choices that they had were to intermingle with the people there. They couldn't create their own little Jewish-specific communities, they had to intermingle and interact with the other people, the other Assyrians. The end result of that was the Assyrians and the Jews began to intermarry, and the Jews who were not part of that scattering, the southern kingdom saw them, and it's going to be an offensive term, but saw them as half-bred Jews. And because of that, they were spiritually unclean. Because of that, in the Jews' mind, they weren't worthy of worshiping God, the Samaritans, for their part, because they couldn't go to Jerusalem, began to create their own places to worship God. Uh, and it was all kind of caught up with the northern kingdom. Is Anyway, the northern kingdom had created their own places of worship, these false calves that they had set up. And they would say, behold, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt, uh, worshiping before these false gods. And so there was just this kind of religious uh, anger between the two groups, and they just wouldn't interact with each other at all. So Jesus is right there on the border of Galilee and Samaria trying to get around to go to Jerusalem. As he gets there, though, he's approached from a distance by 10 lepers. And it seems like leprosy is the cure for this intermingling of the Samaritans and the Jews because they actually had one of the lepers, it says, who happened to be a Samaritan, which I think implies that the others probably weren't Samaritans. But when you all are kind of cast off together, you begin to intermingle. And the lepers at that time were, were in a pretty tough situation. You can read about 
uh, all of this in the book of Leviticus. I think it's in chapter 14, where it kind of lays out all the rules and the laws for somebody who had leprosy. Um, but if you want to know kind of what it's like, it's um, kind of like we experienced for the last couple of years. If somebody's sick, they're quarantined away from everybody else until they could prove that they were not sick and then they were welcomed back into polite society. And so the lepers were required to social distance themselves. So much so that they actually had to call out unclean if they approached somebody who didn't have leprosy. And so as Jesus was coming, what these guys should have done, they kept their distance, but as he was coming, what they could have done or should have done is just said, whoa, 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 whoa. We have leprosy, you need to keep your distance. And it's to prevent that from spreading. Now today we take a pill for that. They didn't have that back then. It's really fascinating. I actually listened to a sermon on this. I don't do this often because I get confused when I listen to multiple sermons before I preach a sermon and I find myself like sharing the same stories, the same illustrations. And before long I realize I'm just parroting. I'm not actually teaching anything new. Uh, But I listened to one and it was from the 90s. And the pastor was saying, well, this is just like the AIDS virus. 16,000 new cases a day. We don't know how to stop it. We've got to keep ourselves separate. It's the same idea. It's the same thing that happens time from time where disease begins to spread in order to protect ourselves and the rest of community. We separate out. And that's how these guys felt. They felt separated. But here comes, here comes Jesus. And maybe they've heard of Jesus. But these 10 leprous men standing at a distance, they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They're begging him. They just want some mercy. They've been separated not for 14 days, but potentially for months or maybe years. And they're in a terrible situation. They they can't be involved in commerce in any way, really. They're at the mercy of anybody that'll come take care of them. They see Jesus and they immediately call him master and ask for him to have mercy on them. I love how Jesus responds to this. In verse 14, he gives them some instructions. Go and show yourselves to the priests, and that's it. Just go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, in the Old Testament law, this was already laid out for them. This wasn't new information at least to the Jews, if you have leprosy, there is this process where you show yourself to the priest, although the priest has to come out to you. And then there's this time frame where you can kind of wait and see if this really is leprosy or something else. And then there's this process where you shave your head. I didn't have leprosy. I just happened to be bald. But they would shave their heads. They would shave their eyebrows. They would baptize themselves, symbolically showing themselves to be clean. They could then re-enter into society as somebody who no longer has any visible evidence of leprosy in their life. So Jesus sends them to go talk to the priests. Now, a couple of interesting things on why Jesus might have done that. The first is just to see if he really is their master. Again, the servant is the one who does what their master says. And so he says to them, go show yourself to the priests. So now they have to go to the priests, although one of them is a Samaritan, the priest isn't going to want to see him anyway. That's what they have to do. So they turn and they start going that way and they're instantly healed. Now, I think the other reason Jesus sent them to the priests is the priests needed to know that Jesus is healing people, that the Savior has come. It was one of those signs that he was the Messiah. I think there was a reason in that. One of the lepers realizes they're walking towards the priest. They're like, wait, wait a second. It's gone. I've been healed. And he turns around, he runs back to Jesus, he throws himself at his feet and he starts to glorify God. And it just so happens that it's the one that's the Samaritan who's worshiping God. I think these things are recorded, by the way, just to be a little jab at the the Jews who didn't quite understand loving your neighbor meant even Samaritans. Just a little jab in there for them. But... Jesus says, well, didn't I heal 10 of you guys? Why is there only one giving glory to God today? And why is it not even the Jewish guy? It's the Samaritan guy. 
He says to him, your faith has made you well. Now you might recall this. Uh, We've been talking about healing a lot in the gospel of Luke and there's uh, at least six reasons listed out for healing. Uh, Number one, just to know that he had the power to forgive sins. Number two, as a fulfillment of prophecy. But the third one on the list was, so people would glorify God. That's actually happening here. Other times he did it so that people would believe. Sometimes he did it uh, as um, just a movement of his own compassion. Uh, But in this case, it's also, as it says here, it's a response to his faith. It was your faith that made you well. Now look, we have a ministry I talked about earlier, faith to move a mulberry bush into the water. In this case, this one had faith When Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest, he had the faith to just do it. Jesus, in response to his faith, though, gave him healing. Healing is not the reason Jesus came here. It's not his mission. His mission was to call people to repentance. But he sometimes used healing for the purpose of showing people what it was, or who he was, and who it was that he was, what he was trying to accomplish in the world. So... We find the response then to the things that God does is that we should give glory to him. And this final section, a kind of a longer section, it's going to be 17 verses here. It's going to be dealing with some end times things, some second coming things. And so I have 11 minutes to describe to you the most complicated thing in doctrinal history. So let's get at it. Verse 20. Now, having, que- having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So again, notice this. He's been working mostly with the disciples. He's just healed these lepers. And in the middle of that, we have the Pharisees asking him a question about when the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is going to answer them, but I want you to understand the importance of that question. Part of the problems that the Pharisees had with Jesus being the Messiah is that their understanding of the scripture was that when the Messiah came, he would come as a king As a mighty warrior, he would come and he would overthrow the oppressors, the Romans. He was going to be a political king. He was going to be a warring king. He was going to be a king like everybody dreamed of. And then here comes Jesus, a carpenter's son, a rabbi, a preacher, kind of lowly, just the servant of all, not the king of all. You see, it kind of messed with their understanding of how the kingdom of God was going to come. And I think in part, it led to their inability to see Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we know another part of that was their own pridefulness and their own sin. They, they craved position. They craved power. But I think a piece of it was, this was not how they envisioned the King of God coming. They wanted the kingdom of God to come in this mighty military victory. And Jesus just comes in, just this lowly carpenter guy. It just kind of messed with their heads a little bit. So Jesus is going to respond to them very quickly, but then he's going to turn his attention to the disciples. And so his very quick response is this. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Uh, You can't say, look, there it is, or there it is over there. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Some translations say, in the middle of you, and other translations say, The kingdom of God is in you, which is probably a bad way to translate that. Or within you, or within your midst. But the idea that I think Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees is the kingdom of God is anywhere where God is king. And if they're not willing to make God king now, he'll never be their king in the future. But he is concerned a little bit about his disciples. He knows that there is going to be that victorious kingdom coming, but it's not going to be for a long time. How long of a time? It's been nearly 2,000 years and we're still waiting. 
And although they say absence makes the heart grow fonder, I think there's a limit to that. I think eventually absence makes the heart give up and just assume they're never coming back. And I think Jesus is concerned that that might be the case for his disciples. And so although the question was asked by the Pharisees, he gives them a very quick answer. Just make him king now. Ultimately, I think he's pointing to himself. He's standing in their midst. He ultimately is the king, but he has to come first as a suffering servant from the book of Isaiah 53 before he can come as a conquering king in the line of David and the promises, the covenant of the David, Davidic covenant. That's the process that has to happen. But he's really actually, I think, concerned about his disciples because his disciples are going to have the same questions. And, and we have these questions today. Uh, again, I was listening to this one sermon. It was from the 90s. And this poor pastor who's still pastoring, I, I, I sat uh, next to him at a conference just about two, uh, well, maybe a year ago. But anyway, this same guy was preaching in the 90s. And he said, I mean, you, you just, how long is it going to take? We were convinced Jesus was coming back in the 70s and he didn't come back. So we adjusted our timetables. It must be the 80s. And then he didn't come back. He's like, it's the mid-90s now. How much longer can this take? The guy's still preaching 30 years later. Still hoping for the kingdom of God. You can see how that, that waiting for the kingdom could cause your heart to kind of give up on the kingdom. Jesus is concerned about his disciples thinking that way. And so he tells them this in verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They, they will say to you, uh, look there, or, look here. Don't go away. Don't run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Uh, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Uh, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed all of them. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, if, uh, lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Uh, verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. All right, that is a big, long, confusing section of Scripture. But, but let me kind of lay it out for you. Again, Jesus is concerned, as it says there in verse 22, that the disciples, his disciples, and even us, the waiting is going to make us long for the day that we'll actually get to see the Son of Man. Because of that, we're going to get confused sometimes. Now, there's going to be people that are going to come along and say either the kingdom of God has already happened or look at this, look at this. I'm seeing all these things in the news. It must be coming now. Or as we've seen in history, false churches will arise. Did you know that Jesus already turned, returned in a town in Missouri? Well, this is what the Mormons believe. Did you know he came back in Korea? reincarnated as a Korean Jesus. Now, we think that's crazy, but there's a cult in town that believes that. Worldwide Mission Society of God, or I call them the Mother God Church, because their Jesus returned, but then unfortunately he died, and so now his wife is in charge. There's a reality to this type of thing keeps happening. There he is, there he is. And Christians sometimes, we're so ready for him to come back, we're like, where? I'll go anywhere to see him. 
And Jesus says, don't let that freak you out. He's gonna give us their first little word of advice. And it's this, he says, when I come back, it's just gonna be like lightning in the sky. What he means by that, by the illustration that he's giving here is even though lightning might happen way over there, you can see it way over here. In other words, the return of Jesus, when he comes to bring his kingdom, it'll be obvious. You're not gonna miss it because you were out of town. Man, I, I went to Fort Collins for one day to do some shopping and to eat someplace. Next thing you know, Jesus came back and took all of Wyoming with us, but why would he take Colorado? It wouldn't even make sense, and so I, didn't, I missed it. <laughs> missed the second coming, because I was out of state. Now, Jesus is not like that. It's, it's gonna be visible. Everybody's gonna know about it when he returns. It's gonna be obvious. Now, he's gonna give them some other examples, though. Beyond being obvious... He wants them to understand that it can't happen until he suffers in verse 25. First, the son of man. Of course, we might recall this from other passages in the gospel of Luke, also from the book of Daniel, uh, even an indication in the book of Ezekiel. The son of man is a reference to the Messiah. Jesus continually points to himself as the son of man. But he, he says in verse 25, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's what he's going to Jerusalem to do. He's going to be crucified. So it has to come after the suffering of Jesus Christ, which is the point that the Pharisees missed. They overlooked Isaiah 53 that described the Messiah as the suffering servant. But Jesus is now going to give them these two illustrations, first of the days of Noah, second of the days of Lot. If you don't fully understand the days of Noah, Bill Cosby does a great bit about it, but also, you can read about it in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 7 kind of describes this for us. In Genesis 7, uh, the idea was everybody was just living their life. Noah's building an ark because God said, hey, I'm going to destroy the world. So the pattern that we see there, the righteous people were taken out. And then the people, the sinful people were destroyed. But they didn't see it coming. He's going to give him a second example. The next example is Lot. Same way. People were buying. People were selling. They were getting married. They were doing all the things that you do in this life. Doing all of those things. When destruction comes, it's the same pattern. God called out the righteous people, Lot and his family. And there was this whole bartering thing that went on between, uh, between God and Lot, where Lot's like, I don't know, would you destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people? And God's like, no. Would you destroy the city if there were 25? God's like, no. The reason is because God was going to take the righteous people out of the city. Same pattern, right? Brings the righteous out. He brings destruction. And the people that were destroyed had no idea it was coming. That's what the second coming is going to be like of Jesus Christ. What we don't want to get confused here is uh, sometimes people will read the rapture into this passage. I don't think this is specifically talking about the rapture. I think it's the second coming most likely connected then to Revelation chapter 19. This is the coming that the Pharisees were waiting for, where Jesus will come as a conquering king. But people are just not going to be seeing it coming because they're going to be so caught up in their world and what's going on around them, what's happening to them. In fact, they're going to be so against it when he does come, they're going to turn and try to fight against him. They will lose. But before he does that, there's this removal of the righteous ones. All different kinds of church traditions define that removal different. We don't have time for that today, but if you want to know more about that, I taught through the book of Revelation, and he'll tell you all about it. I actually love the way it says that in verse 30 there. It says the son of man is revealed. And that, that language is used a couple of times. It's used in Titus chapter two, in 1 Timothy six, in Colossians three. And the book of Revelation starts out in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus will be revealed. That's the whole point of the book. It's talking about that time when Jesus will be revealed. This is linked to that somehow. So he gives those similar illustrations with Noah with Lot. It'll be sudden. Nobody saw it coming. The righteous ones will be removed. The wicked will be destroyed. Repeated there. The second time through, he's going to give a second illustration though. He says this at the end of verse 31, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. 
If you remember the story of Lot's wife, when they were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that she was lagging behind and then she stopped and turned back towards Sodom and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Because she turned back, she was destroyed with the unrighteous ones. And I think the simple warning there, there's a lot that could be done uh, in the eschatological view of this, but just the simple warning to us as disciples, don't get so distracted by the things of this world that you just give, give up on the idea that Jesus is coming back. And you start to return to your prior, your prior manner of, of living. He says it a little bit different there in verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it, I tell you. On that night, there's going to be two in bed. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Two people grinding, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Verse 36, a slight issue that some of you might have noticed. Um, if you have the New American Standard Version like I do, verse 36 is in brackets. That's the translator's way of telling you we're not sure this verse actually fits there. It, it probably wasn't in the original. That's what the translators of this believe. If you have the ESV, you might notice verse 36 didn't even exist. It just does verse 35, and then it does verse 37. So you might be going, Sean's making up scriptures now. He's just saying things that are not even there. And my translators can't count. Let's go from 35 to 37. Something's wrong here. And then if you have the King James, you'll see in there probably verse 36. Although if you have the New King James, it might have a note denoting that this may not have been in the original text. That's confusing to people, but I want you to understand uh, that when we've got our Bible compiled, thousands of different copies of the scriptures, and they take those and they compile them and they get together the most accurate that they can, but over time, we continue to find copies in manuscripts and beyond manuscripts, we actually find people's commentaries on the scriptures from around those times. And so you can go back. When you hear about these church fathers, Arrhenius and people like that, uh, they've actually got their scriptures and they've written commentary to go along with it. And so we can see how they quote the scriptures to recognize what would have been more likely in the original. So we're just continuing to improve and our translators are just trying to be honest with us, which I'm actually comforted by that. Some people are freaked out by it, but I, I'm comforted by the fact that our translators say, look, there's a question about this verse. It's not questionable in its teaching because if you look at the book of Matthew that is literally in Matthew and so probably this is my guess what happened is somebody wrote a little note underneath this verse where they wrote out the Matthew verse as an addition there and then later a scribe comes along and he's writing it out and he just adds that to it and before long you have this branch of copies that have this addition in it and then you have a whole other group of copies that don't have that addition. And you say, well, how would that happen? Well, look at my Bible. You see all these little notes I've got all around the place? Well, they would have done similar things with certain copies back then. Somebody could have written on there just notes. But there was a big difference. You see how it's obvious the notes that are mine and the notes that aren't mine? You see it's printed versus handwritten? This was before the printing press. They didn't have the printing press like we have today. Every copy is exactly the same. Literally every copy of the scripture was handwritten. And if it gets written wrong, it gets repeated wrong. So there's a danger in that. And so thankfully our translators are doing their due diligence and some of the more new translations in the last 50 to 100 years, maybe I have to go 150 years because... I'm 50 now, and so anyway, nearly 50, nearly 50. They're getting more accurate as they have more information. But anyway, all of that is a side note. So he gets back to this in verse 37. He said to them, uh, and answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And this has caused a lot of confusion over the years. Again, some people think this is a picture of the rapture. Some people think this is a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the idea in both of those pictures is vultures, and some translations will say eagles there, uh, that these birds come. And for the rapture, they would say they pick up the believers and they take them away. For the second coming, they would say, no, they're birds of prey, and they come and they eat the dead in Revelation chapter 19. 
I'm going to offer a third version, which I think is simpler and doesn't even answer the question whether it's the second coming or not, but simpler. I think it's the same as the lightning in the sky. It's the same idea that it's, it's visible everywhere. It's, you don't have to be right there. Wherever it's happening, wherever the kingdom of God is happening, it will be visible in the sky. Just like vultures, if you've ever been hiking and you start seeing them circling around, you know there's something dead over there. And they're, they're, they're waiting for their chance at a snack. Or they're waiting for something to die. You can see it in the sky. You don't have to go check it out for yourself. You know it's there. Again, the kingdom of God, it's not about where it is. The question is, will you miss it? And no, you won't. It'll be obvious. It'll be clear. We don't have to get all worked up. And sometimes we do, Christians. We get, we get worked up. I read something in the news. It must be the kingdom of God. I heard a new prophecy. It must be the kingdom of God. Something's happening that's never happened before. That's pretty rare, actually. It may be something that never happened in your lifetime. There's war right now. It's never been like this before. Really? In fact, Jesus said himself, wars and rumors of wars, those are just birth pangs, but they're not signs. And yet we have whole entire ministries devoted to seeing the signs of the times. And they're looking at all the things that Jesus said, those aren't signs. Whole entire ministries devoted to that. Jesus says, when the Son of Man is revealed, it'll be obvious to everybody. So don't give up. When you're longing to see him, don't turn back to your old lifestyle. Just believe that he's returning. Just trust it. It's true. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today and for our chance to be in the Word, Lord. A long passage, difficult passage, uh, which means there's lots of things for us to learn. Uh, my prayer again is that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us the things that we need to hear from this passage. I know for me, I needed to be reminded of how easy it is to return to, to your old way of thinking and your old way of living, getting caught up in the temporary instead of thinking about the eternal. Father, there are times where I, for lack of a better way of saying it, feel like I don't even care about the return of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen, it's whatever, whatever, and I just give up. Lord, I, I want to desire it. I want to long for it like your disciples. I just don't want to long in an unhealthy way. Father, for your people here today, I know for some people that teaching on forgiveness was painful for them. Father, I pray that you help them to be obedient to your word and to trust you for the results. Oh, Father, for others, there was a rebuke here that they are the stumbling blocks. They're always getting in the way of other people's faith for whatever reason. Oh, Father, would your spirit and your word be rebuking them today? Oh, Father, some of us have been healed and forgiven. And we've not been glorifying you. We've not been praising you. Help us, Lord, to praise you for all that you've done for us. Father, we thank you. We love you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.